What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, it's Thursday for me, and that doesn't really mean much. I have a lull in my fight against the flies. I have weather-stripped the heck out of my back door where I think they're coming in. I have weather-stripped my basement door because they're coming in through the basement, and I think working their way up. And I think that did something. Put out the fly traps. I think I've won the war. It's uh, just basically triaging a problem instead of actually solving it. But I'm able to be back down in my podcast studio, even though there's still gnats. I hate basements. So, besides that, still got a girlfriend. That's working out pretty well. It's also none of your business. I got my interview with the Cultured Bumpkin up and available for you fine folks to listen to. So go search whatever podcast app you're using for The Cultured Bumpkin, and you'll hear the interview with me and my special reading of uh, some weird short story I found. Beyond that, busy weekend. My daughter's finally got her softball championships, which goes Friday night and... All day Saturday until like 10 o'clock at night, which is insane. So I'll be doing that. And uh, who knows, possibly going to a certain festival that a small town near me uh, always has. Not sure yet. We'll see how that goes. But uh, that's pretty much it. I got nothing. Oh, you want to know about my trees? Still not treated. My lawn? Not my lawn's now doing fine. It's fine. My job? Yeah, it still sucks. That's pretty much it. So let's move on to the story. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading. So um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you should probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do, and uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed, just like you, and maybe your kid in the back seat. And with that, enjoy this episode of Leaves of Glen. I am Glenn Nuzzles. I am happy to report that uh, this will be the shortest chapter I've ever read in this book, which I'm pretty excited about. It's only like three pages, so I thought to try to flesh out the episode, I'll do a kind of informational review of this book that we have all struggled through together. But 
I thought before I got started, I would call out that there is a listener in the Republic of Lithuania who seems to have been steadily listening. Uh, I don't know who you are. I don't know what episodes you listen to. It just shows that there's activity coming from one place in Lithuania. So thanks. Uh, I don't know what I could be possibly offering you that you find interesting, but uh, I appreciate it. So this final episode, uh, chapter 25, The Terrorists, is dedicated to you. And that doesn't sound good. A chapter called The Terrorist I'm dedicating to this one listener in Lithuania, but it is. This is for you, man or woman. I hope life is going real nice for you. Uh, and enjoy as I read chapter 25. <clears throat> it was not until Ernest and I were back in New York, and after weeks had elapsed, that we were able to comprehend thoroughly the full sweep of the disaster that had befallen the cause. The situation was bitter and bloody. In many places scattered over the country, slave revolts and massacres had occurred. The role of the martyrs increased mightily. Countless executions took place everywhere. The mountains and waste regions were filled with outlaws and refugees. Open oh, that. <laughs> Oh, I killed it by blowing on it. That's the reason why you are the weaker species. The mountains and waste regions were filled with outlaws and refugees who were being hunted down mercilessly. Our own refugees were packed with comrades who had prices on their heads. Though information furnished by its spies, scores of our refugees were raided by the soldiers of the Iron Heel. Many of the comrades were disheartened, and they retaliated with terroristic tactics. The setback to their hopes made them despairing and desperate. Many terrorist organizations unaffiliated with us sprang into existence and caused us much trouble. These misguided people sacrificed their own lives wantonly, very often made our own plans go astray, and retarded our organization. Mm, that didn't hold up well. And though it had all moved the... Iron heel, impassive and deliberate, shaking up the whole fabric of the social structure in its search for the comrades, combing out the mercenaries, the labor castes, and all its secret services, punishing without mercy and without malice, suffering in silence, all retaliations that were made upon it, and filling the gaps in its fighting line as fast as they appeared. And, hand in hand with this, Ernest and the other leaders were hard at work reorganizing the forces of the revolution. The magnitude of the task may be understood when it is taken into dot dot dot. And that's the end of the book. Apparently, Avis had to stop writing real real quick and hide her manuscript under her bed or something. So... From here on out, it's just notes on everything. And apparently that plays a huge part of the book, which I will be getting into in just a minute. Which leads us to what I suppose I'll do at the end of every book I read. Summary time! This is where I go over what I read and try to make sense of it. One thing I learned is that uh, I skipped over the foreword thinking it was just a foreword by the author or anybody else, 
Which is important, but I just wanted to get straight to the story. Um, it turns out it plays a huge part of the book, which I had said earlier. It lets you know that there was the Brotherhood of Man. Uh, a person named Meredith finding Avis's manuscript hundreds of years in the future is basically commenting on what we're reading and the, the idea being that he's putting it out there for us to read. Uh, that there, after this failed attempt at revolution by Ernest and his gang, uh, eventually, hundreds of years later, the proletariat organizes into the BOM, Brotherhood of Man, and they succeed in crushing the Iron Heel. And uh, from that point, our... Uh, looking back into the past and digging through their archives and have declared Avis and Ernest uh, martyrs and heroes. So that was something, it's basically with a giant spoiler at the beginning of this that I skipped over, which I didn't know and I should have probably read. But there's also a ton of footnotes that give some sort of idea behind what's happening um, from a future perspective. So from that, we learn that the revolution that we read about will end in failure uh, that both Ernest and Avis will be executed. And uh, that's kind of it. So, eh, I didn't want to stop reading every five seconds to get into, like, the notes, the footnotes and stuff. Main points of this book, it's structured really weird. Uh, it's a manuscript re-released by Anthony Meredith in the 27th century with footnotes and everything. So that adds a level of narration, kind of hanging over... Avis's level of narration from 1912 to 17. But she's living in the present and recalling her past while presenting that past as if it's happening in the present. So that's kind of uh, adding a weird complexity to the story because it's not being talked about in the past tense and you don't know when it's catching up to the present, really. So that's when she stops writing because apparently something happened and she has to hide the manuscript, which is said that she hides it in the hollow of a tree, which somehow stays there protected for hundreds of years. Uh, that part's a little unbelievable, but all right. Um, uh, she writes from her point of view, but also the point of view of other people throughout the story. So it'll jump kind of narrators as we're going through. We know that uh, Avis and Nurse are unsuccessful. Before the story starts, which is adding a level of complexity, time-wise jumping, a lot of jumping around. Um, and knowing that the revolution is defeated but successful much later puts everything in a kind of weird framework. So this kind of a multi-layered story. Um, it was notable for being one of the first dystopian novels of its kind, which inspired the book We, which I read. That makes sense, because I've read We a long time ago, and I remember thinking... Boy, oh boy, this is real, real dry. Uh, just that there's not really characters' feelings and emotions that you get to kind of dip into. Unlike Brave New World in 1984, which are really good. Um, it foresaw the rise of fascist activity in the world before it actually happened for real. Uh, it incorrectly uses the strikes of the working class as a way to uh, defeat the fascism in Europe. That part was wrong but weirdly write about Japan conquering East Asia and creating its own empire. Uh, it mentions India gaining its independence, which I thought was pretty weird, uh, and that it says Europe becomes socialist, which is a little off, 
Canada, Mexico, and Cuba form their own oligarchies and uh, are sided up with the U.S. Not mentioned, London, South America, Africa, and the Middle East. So those are some notes about the story in general. The reception of the book eh, is mixed. People that are big into socialism and that message at the time loved it. Uh, Weirdly, Leon Trotsky uh, said that he had high praise for it as a great work of imagination. So he was aware of the book, which is kind of odd, weird. I don't know. Uh, It explores the soft sciences uh, and especially the social sciences. Uh, For example, anthropology, sociology, or psychology, rather than engineering or the hard sciences. For example, physics, astronomy, and chemistry. Um, Soft science just means that it's the opposite of hard science. It's scientifically inaccurate or plausible. So that's something I learned, what soft science means. It's just kind of you're writing a book about the future without getting into science that could happen. Eh, Who cares? Charles N. Watson Jr. is a critic, and he says that The Iron Heel is a minor revolutionary classic, a novel that London seems to have written too much out of his heart and too little out of his head. I would say more out of the head, not with the heart, so I disagree with you, Charles N. Watson. He uh, says that London asked the reader to accept the existence of two Avises simultaneously, the fluttering young woman of the love of adventure and the hardened revolutionary of the political drama. Uh, yeah, that seems like a minor complaint, I think. Uh, when I was going through other people's critiques of it, uh, I found enotes.com, which I wouldn't consider the most credible source I've ever read in my entire life, says uh, one thing I agree with. Because of uh, its facts and focus on the socioeconomic climate of the world, London forgot to add some character depth to its main protagonist and antagonist and left the plot a bit structurally undeveloped. Uh, The sudden ending of the novel and nearly academic way of describing the unfolding but not the resolution of the main events only strengthened this claim. So there you go. You got one person who agrees with me. Whoever wrote that article on enotes.com. What did I think? Not the best. I got this book as a gift from my dad when I was really young. And so that's kind of part of the reason why I wanted to uh, read this, because I never took the time to read it as a kid. Um, Again, like I say a million times, the characters are just kind of chess pieces being moved around to get to the point of the story. You don't really worry about one. They did try with the uh, Bishop Morehouse, I think is probably the most kind of pathetic figure that you on some level hope the best for. But eh, not really. So, it had balloon fights. That's pretty cool. Um, Really romanticized killing. So, that's something to sit around thinking about in your free time when you take a bath. And that's pretty much it. And that's me wrapping up The Iron Heel by Jack London. I have got to figure out something else I'm going to read. There was a book about a vampire written over a hundred years ago. And it seems to be one of the first vampires that also is a homosexual. But I imagine that that book is going to be so offensive that I'm going to regret having read it. So I think I'm going to try and go with something safer 
that doesn't offend me and my audience. What is it going to be? Lady Chatterley's lover? I don't know. Maybe. Who knows? I could do Huck Finn, but there's not a lot to, like, poke fun at in that. Also, mildly racist. That's going to be a big problem with these uh, public domain books. All the bigotry. So thank you for going through season one of Leaves of Glen, reading The Iron Heel by Jack London. I hope you tune in for whatever the heck I read next time. I have been Glenn Nuzzles. Oh, but before I go, don't let me forget to uh, recommend a new book that's coming out soon from Penguin Random House. This one is The Pawful Truth by Miranda James, part of the Cat in the Stacks mystery series. Uh, it's a hardcover. It's coming out July 16th. Ugh, it's 304 pages. Let's read about The Pawful Truth. When Charlie Harris decides to go back to school, he and his Maine Coon cat, Diesel, find themselves entangled in a deadly lover's quarrel on campus in the latest installment of the New York Times best-selling series. In addition to his library duties and his role as a doting granddad, Charlie has enrolled in an early medieval history course offered by young charismatic professor Carrie Werner. <laughs> Charlie feels a bit out of place. His fellow classmates are half his age, except for Dixie Bell Compton, another, quote, mature, unquote, student. When Charlie hears an angry exchange between her and the professor, his interest is piqued, and he is even more intrigued when she shows up at his office asking for a study partner. Charlie turns her down and is saddened to learn that just a few days later, Dixie has been killed. Charlie wonders if Professor Werner had anything to do with Dixie's death. Werner is married to a fellow professor who happens to be a successful author. There are rumors on campus that their marriage was on the rocks. Was Dixie's death the result of a lover's triangle gone bad? Charlie soon discovers that the professor's wife may have some secrets of her own, and his suspect list is only getting longer. As he and Diesel step further into the tangled web of relationships, someone else is viciously killed, whose jealousy finally erupted into a murderous rage. It was a crime of passion, or there another more sinister motive. Charlie races to unravel the mystery, and to draw out the culprit. He may just have to put his own life on the line. Want to read about the praise? Uh, sure. The New York Times book review says... Let us now praise the cozy mystery, so comforting on dark days, so warming on chilly nights, literally equivalent of a cat. Courtly librarian Charlie Harris and his main coon cat Diesel are an endearing detective duo, warm, mm, charming, and southern as the tastiest grits. <laughs> That's Carolyn Hart, New York Times bestselling author of the Death on Damned Mysteries, oh, on demand. <laughs> Uh, Lorna Barrett, New York Times bestselling author of the Booktown Mysteries, combines a kind-hearted librarian hero, family secrets in a sleepy southern town, and a gentle giant of a cat that'll steal your heart. Uh, Leanne Sweeney, New York Times bestselling author of Cats in Trouble Mysteries, James 
should soon be on everyone's list of favorite authors. Well, that's kind of lame. MyShelf.com says, Every single time I turned uh, out my light for the night, I found myself thinking about the story, flipping the light switch on again and reading just, oh, just one more chapter until I reached a satisfying conclusion. Run! Don't walk to get your copy today! And that has two exclamation points. Library Journal, ideal for Christy fans who enjoy a good puzzle. And Publishers Weekly, humor and plenty of Southern charm. Cozy fans, we'll hope James will keep Charlie and Diesel in action for years to come. You should keep them in action by pre-ordering The Pawful Truth by Miranda James. 